Okay, so here's a, we're going to begin with a pop quiz. Among, imagine a population of people who attend church. Okay, there are church-going people. Within that population, what is the number one predictor of spiritual growth? She says Bible study, giving. I like that answer, but I don't think that's it. That's good, though. What do you think it is? Number one predictor of spiritual growth. They volunteer. Pardon me? They volunteer. Character. Character, that they're already decent people. Chris? Commitment to what? Okay, that they're just showing up to be to be in there. It's this, you guys. It's it's self feeding. That's the number one thing. For years, churches functioned as if the number one driver of spiritual growth would be like, you know, showing up to stuff, just participating, coming to Sunday school and sitting here. And Ann, you're shaking your head. Why are you shaking your head? Well, if you don't self feed, you know. This is true. If you, Andrew said, if you don't self-feed, you do not grow. And the risk of a class like this is that you could feel like if you come and you show up and you listen, and maybe even you participate in the conversation, that that's somehow going to have some like, you know, magical value. And while I hope there is value in it, if this gathering or any gathering, right, you're showing up in your small group, sitting in there, you know, sitting in a pew, if, that, if you feel like that's the thing and that's the key thing that's going to cause you to grow, and because of that, you don't take time to spend time alone in the scriptures, just you and Jesus all by yourself becoming a self-feeder, reading books because you're taking command of your own spiritual development, deciding that you are gonna grow in your skills to learn how to read God's word. If you don't do those things because you're showing up here for an hour a week, it's a net loss. It's a net loss. You're not breaking even, you're losing. This group here is not meant to be just like, hey, let's come together and you know, be entertained and say fun things and you know, enjoy one another's company. But this is meant to be a catalyst for you all by yourself when there's nobody looking that you're going to be in the scriptures. If you do that, we win. Everything blows up. I watched this happen in my own life. I was involved in a, group, a student group called Crew for a couple years when I was uh, at JMU. And it was fine. It was great. You know, made friends, da 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 Everybody was having, you know, not everybody, but many people were in the habit of spending time alone with Jesus, and I wasn't. My freshman year, not at all. My sophomore year, not at all. I remember where I was my junior year when I finally decided, okay, 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 fine. And I will begin this habit of just like 15 minutes a day, just alone in the Bible, beginning to do this. And you guys, it was like that exponential curve, click, 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 click. That's when my life began to change. And so what we're going to be doing here this forever, I don't know how long, is we're going to study the life of David. And it could be a gigantic, colossal waste of time. If all that we're doing is sitting in here and I say a few things and you listen and maybe you speak up, you know, that's whatever, that's as may be. But if this prompts you to get into 1 Samuel, to read it yourself, 2 Samuel when we get there, um, and you learn or you do not learn from zero, but if you improve your ability to read God's word, if you're learning, oh, these are the, these are the tricks about how to take narrative apart, then we, then tick, 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 that's what happens. The whole game, all that we do is really about catalyzing, facilitating, helping you with becoming a self-feeder of God's word. If we do that, we win everything. Do it not, it's a waste of our time. All right? So. Don't be satisfied to just be entertained for the next 35 minutes, but let's actually grow in our ability to read God's word and engage it and apply it into our lives. 1 Samuel 16, okay? 
David, do you remember what we said? What is David's claim to fame in the scriptures? Do you remember? Man after God's own heart. That's good. What else? Mentioned in the Bible more than anyone but Jesus. This is true, right? There's more content about this one man than anybody else who has ever lived with the exception of Jesus. It's pretty, pretty noteworthy. And so we just kind of made the decision. Let's, let's, let's understand if he's such a big deal, if his life is so significant, then let's find out what it is. And I'll tell you, it's not just because he's so good, although there are things about David that are truly exceptional. But it's also because he's not so good. We're going to see an awful lot about David's failings as well as his successes. But 1 Samuel 16 is where David gets introduced. Okay, It's not his first mention. What's, what's the first mention of David? Do you know? This is where he gets introduced. But the first time his name shows up, if you just search in your Bible for David, what's the earliest hit on David? Do you know? Uh, Ruth? Is that what you said? That's exactly right, right? So it's almost in a foreshadowing way. At the very end of Ruth, it's like, oh, and so she had a kid and she had a kid, and, or he had a kid, he had a kid, and that came David. So Ruth anticipates, points to David, right? But then when he steps on the scene for the very first time and we meet the man, which is really a boy at the time we meet him, it's 1 Samuel 16. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. So if you've got 1 Samuel 16, turn your Bible there. And I would just encourage you, and consistent with what I was just saying, why don't you read this week? If you want to, it'd be magnificent. Read 1 Samuel, read 16 to, I don't know, 20, 25. Just, we're going to be laying it down. I won't give you a specific assignment each week. Just be in it. Just read it. And then read it again. And then read it again. And we'll just kind of like become like immersed in the life of David. 1 Samuel 16 is where he shows up. When you read narrative, do you know what your basic unit is if you're reading narrative? What's your like division? What's the paragraph? What's the chapter? What's the... What are, we, what are you looking for as a division factor in a narrative? Is this familiar? Maybe it's strange to you. Any idea? Is it too esoteric of a question? You want to think in terms of scenes. Imagine what you're reading is a movie that you're watching, okay? What's the scene? What you watch for the, they're in a location, particular, a particular group of people in a particular place doing something. And then there's a camera change, and now we're in a new place with a new group of people doing something different. You're, you're accustomed to this in a movie. You watch scenes in movies. Just watch for scenes when you're reading a narrative like, like Samuel, okay? So we're going to watch just a handful of scenes here, two main scenes and a couple kind of filler ones. So as it begins, what's going on? Well, in fact, you tell me, what is the context? When da you can draw from your memory, and maybe you've just recently read this. What's been happening right before we get introduced to David? Do you have any memory of what's, what's happening in the storyline of this? <coughs> yeah, go ahead, Rita. Samuel's been grieving and grieving and grieving, and the Lord says, okay, enough. Okay, very good. Samuel is grieving, and why is Samuel grieving? Saul. Because he loves Saul. Because, yeah, he's, he loves Saul, and Saul just got the axe. That's right. Kelly? Thank you. 
That's right. Okay, so let me recap some of that. You might not have heard all of that. So, so Saul was the first king of Israel. He was given a particular assignment to go fight this battle, and he does. And in the battle, he's supposed to kill everything. He's supposed to wipe out all these animals, just slaughter the thing, and he doesn't. He keeps things for himself, and God rebukes him for it. And it's basically like God, I, God made very clear, do this. Samuel, uh, not Samuel, but Saul did not do, did I say Samuel earlier? It's all been Saul the whole time. Saul's the king. Um, and Saul did not do what he was supposed to do. He did not do what he was explicitly told. And so God says, it's it. And he takes the kingdom away. Not quite yet, but the promise is made that it's going away. You're going to lose your kingdom. Samuel is grieved about this. It's kind of a mess. It's a big deal for the nation of Israel. And so now we have this king who's been told he's going to lose his kingdom. And God says, I want you to go find the next guy that's going to replace him. Okay. Now, in that kind of a context, how do you think Saul is going to feel about things? He's going to be angry. Okay. We're going to see. How do you think Samuel is going to feel about things? Not only is he sad, but what else might he be when God says, go get the new guy? He's going to be scared. Right. So watch the way this thing's going to play out. Okay. Say, oh, I should probably open this up myself. So 1 Samuel 16, the Lord says to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I've rejected him? Fill your horn, get out of here, go get, go get the new king. And Samuel says this in verse 2, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. Right out of the gate, as we're introduced to David, you've got to understand that the stakes are very, very high, right? We're going to have a story about David killing a giant and all these things. That's going to come probably next week. We'll look at that. But right now, as this story begins, we're recognizing there's intrigue in the kingdom, Right? And there's fear and there's worry because Saul has been told he's going to lose it, but he hasn't actually lost it. It would be nice if when God said, you're going to lose it, he lost it immediately and installed David. But what we, we talked about a couple weeks ago, do you remember how long it's going to be until David actually becomes king? About 15 years. For fifth, that's a long time. For 15 years, we're going to live in this already not yet state for David's king, for David's kingship. And it's going to be a very, very frightening time. And the stage is being set as David is introduced. He's into, he steps into, like, the music that will be playing if this was a film is ominous. He's stepping into a very frightening environment. So much so that God basically gives Samuel a cover story. Like, all right, all right, all right, well, 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 you go over here, you offer a sacrifice, and while you're there, you can go find David. Because the situation is fraught. It's dangerous. The king is still the king. He still has an awful lot of power. And off they go to find this person, okay? Samuel goes... Um, even though he's afraid he's going to get killed, he goes. And what happens when he gets there? Do you remember what happens? Well, first of all, where is he going? Where is Samuel going to go? One second, John. Where does he go? Jesse. He's going to go to Jesse's family, right? Okay, John, what did you want to say, bro? Uh, it's interesting that uh, Samuel is afraid of Saul, but when he shows up at Bethlehem, the elders are afraid of him. Yes, that's true. Yeah, so the, and which I think speaks to this idea that there's just this fear in the environment, right? And you perhaps have maybe lived through seasons where like everybody's just kind of like on edge. Everybody's afraid. That's our moment right here. There's just, a, there's just an air of fear to the whole thing, okay? And Samuel shows up to Jesse's family, and God has told him uh, that he'll recognize him when he sees him. He doesn't tell him who the new king is going to be, who he's come to anoint. He says, you go, and then I'll show you who it is, right? And Samuel goes, and he sees him, and he recognizes immediately, this is the guy, this is the new king. Take a look. In verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 6. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, and he thought, surely 
certainly, no doubt, the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Was he right? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? This is Samuel. Samuel's a big deal. Samuel is a prophet. God speaks to Samuel. Samuel speaks with authority. And right out of the gate, he's wrong, 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 wrong. Isn't that interesting? Right? Suggests, I think, that we might want to have just a smidge of humility. Right? We who fancy yourself. Do you, do you think you're as wise as Samuel? Does God speak to you as clearly as he speaks to Samuel? And Samuel blows it right out of the gate. So maybe we should say maybe a little more often than we Right? So God responds, verse 7. The Lord says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. For the Lord does not look at things as man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at, at the heart. And so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Okay, what is the, what is the physical attribute that is being drawn attention to here? Yes. Okay, what, Susan, what did you say? Size, age, very good. Suzanne? That he looks good. That he looks good, his outward appearance. Yeah, what was, do you remember what Saul's most noteworthy physical attribute was? Dude was just tall, right? You all know this, right? Presidents of the United States are all like tall. CEOs are all like, you know, Fortune 500 companies are all like 6'2 or better. Mike Childress is tall, right? You know this phenomenon, right? This is how this all, how it all plays out. And God's like, you know what, no deal. And in fact, when it says they're still the youngest in verse 11, I don't know why the NIV, does ESV get this right? What does ESV say for verse 11? Does it say youngest? Yes. They're all wrong. The Hebrew word there means the, the smallest. David, it's, it's, not, it's not his age. It's interesting. He, it's true that he's young, but that Hebrew word there is that he is, I don't know, why, why do they screw that up? Yeah, ESV has a footnote below it. It says... There you go. Footnotes of ESV. There you go, right? So he's, it's the issue is like, we just like the big guys, right? And God's like, yeah, I'm not impressed. I don't care about that. They're still the youngest, right? The smaller, smaller one. And God is choosing, specifically choosing the one that others would not choose. And in fact, though David is also smaller, he is in fact the younger. That's also true. It's not what the word means, but it's, but it's true. So have you ever noticed that God loves to not pick the firstborn? Who are the, who are the not firstborns that God likes to pick? Solomon. Okay, Solomon, not the firstborn, good. Jacob and Esau, that whole thing, that whole story. Esau comes out first, right? Jacob comes out grasping his brother's heel, which is weird, right? And not the firstborn. Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac, not the firstborn. Who'd you say? Joseph? Joseph. I thought, yeah, that is also true. And you know, uh, you know I thought you said is Moses. Moses also. Did you know Moses has an, Aaron is Moses' older brother, not his, not his younger brother. You think of Moses and then there's Aaron, but it's like this, okay? Manasseh. Uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. Yeah, and these are even like, not even the sons, right? These are like the grandsons, right? Over and over. Why does he do that? Why does God, so we, you all know what the word primogenitor means? What does that mean? Firstborn. The firstborn, right? So like the firstborn gets the larger share of the estate. The firstborn gets this preferred status. That's just a broad cultural thing. The, who's going to be the king when the father dies? Son. The firstborn, right? We have, we have a very deep cultural preference for the firstborn. And God completely inverts it. Why does he do that, you guys? Because God looks on the heart. God looks on the heart. 
still? Yeah. Over and over again. It seems like God has a very distinct and pervasive preference for the disenfranchised, for the overlooked. He loves barren women. Have you noticed that? How often women that cannot have children have a special blessing from him? It's so interesting. One of the things that you want to learn to notice when you're reading narrative is what are the patterns? What are the habits? Does, is God revealing something here? Now, if we'll watch this, we're going to see it happen over and over again throughout Samuel, but you'll see it everywhere in the scriptures. There will be something that God does that's just weird. It's just, I don't know why he does that. Why is it? What's the deal with not going with the firstborn? What is, it, what is the deal? If you added all the weirdnesses up, and if you just attend to all the str- things that are like speed bumps in the road, that are just different, he's always giving us the pattern, the picture, the foreshadowing, the anticipation. This is how he works. God loves to work through the weak and the low. Right? In fact, go, do this. Go up to first. I should have thought of this ahead of time. Go to First Corinthians. Go to First Corinthians chapter two. We'll start this. Let's see where I want to pick this up. Um, actually, let's go to chapter one. We'll go into chapter two. Listen to what he says. Look at verse twenty. This is Paul meditating on the outworking of the strangeness of how God works. He says, "Ah, go to verse eighteen. This thing goes on forever and ever and ever." For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both to Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Go down to 27. God shows the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That's the youngest kid in the family. That's the little guy. God shows the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Think David and Goliath. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And Paul applies this to his life in 2.2. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. What Paul is reflecting on is this. He's just noticed that everywhere God goes in the Old Testament, he constantly does things backward. He constantly preferences the losers and not the winners. He goes for the small guys, not the big guys. He goes for the nerds, not the jocks. He goes for the despised things and the lowly things. Just notice this as you watch through David's life, okay? Just watch all throughout the Old Testament how often these patterns are laid up that are meant to teach us that when we get to the climax of the story, there will be surprises. You with me? 
All right, let's keep going. So David uh, is going to show up. He's the littlest one in the bunch, but he comes. These other firstborns don't get, don't get the game. And what does God say to Samuel about him? We're still here in that, we're looking, looking here at this first half of 1 Samuel 16. What's God's message when we finally get to meet David? The Lord has not chosen this one in verse 8, not this one in verse 9, not this one in verse 10. And then we come down to 11. There's still the youngest, and Samuel says, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And what's the, what's the declaration in verse 12? and anoint him for this is he. he is the one this is he and so Samuel in verse 13 takes the horn of oil and anoints him in the presence of his brothers and from that day on the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power what does that phrase mean this is the one anoint him and then now from that day on it's gonna be 15 years 15 years till he becomes king but the spirit of the Lord came on him with power Kelly what's that mean well, actually, I question what do you guys think do you have any you guys have any insight into this does David understand what's happening to him in this moment yeah jump in what do you think yeah please uh, I just think that if the spirit of God rushed in on him he could more out than anything I think Judy's right that's the whole point of saying that the spirit of God I mean I don't think when he was called and he started pouring oil on his head or something he was like what is this all about but if the spirit of God didn't move then he yeah I think Judy's exactly right that when Samuel, when Samuel comes and anoints him, he knows it. But I don't know at that moment if he knew it's going to be 15 years. Don't you think, he, like, if, if I came and anointed you king, don't you think he'd be like, all right, you know, by Christmas at least. So I think he knows some aspect of what is going on. But in the same way that Samuel, who is this man of God, he mistakes Eliab, he doesn't know. David understands there's something going on, but there's so many times, and we see this over and over and again in the scriptures, that God does not light up the corridor and say, here's how it's all going to play out. He gives these hints, and then we've got to like walk in faith through this dim lit corridor. And I remember somebody telling me when I was a college student, it's like God puts candles on our shoes, and it just illuminates like just this right here, you know, and just this, and you want like, boom, light it up. I'm going to show me what's going to happen, but that's not the way it goes. So I think he understands that he's being called into this role, but I don't think he can possibly imagine how many times spears are going to get thrown at him before he actually becomes king, which is going to make what's about to ensue over these next 15 years astonishingly impressive, okay? Uh, okay, Kelly, and then I'll have, well, let me say one more thing, and then I'll call on you for a second, okay? Can you think of some, somebody else who God makes a promise to, and then it takes like friggin' forever for the promise to come to pass. Okay, who are you thinking? I, I read your lips, Judy. Say it out loud. Abraham. It is Abraham, right? You guys know this? So, hey, you're going to have a baby. He's like, game on. Good. In like, how long? 
20 years or whatever, a long, long time, Gary. Noah. Noah. Yeah, very good. So this is, hey, we're going to, we're going to, you're going to save the people in like a hundred years or something, right? You're going to have a baby forever. Lily? I just think it's, I think it's neat because often when you see a powerful move of the Lord, when the Spirit comes upon someone or a prophetic word is spoken, it's because they know they're about to go into the wilderness. And Jesus follows the path. That's right. The Spirit of the Lord, he's baptized in water and the Spirit comes upon him and then he's driven into the wilderness. And so when you see that pattern, I feel like it's not it is. like, oh my gosh, why is this taking so long? But his time, he's perfectly patient. His, his time is for very long, I remember But to be encouraged that when God does something, That is right. And it's so lame. We're like, I don't want the, like, Moses, you're going to lead my people. But, Mo, you know, this Moses has two 40-year spans. There's the famous 40 years of the roaming around waiting to get into the promised land. But he had to wait 40 years before they even started the journey. Do you remember this? He had his own private time. So Moses, long haul. You know, Abraham, long haul. David, it's over and over and over again. Even Paul. Paul, you don't think about it. We feel like you read the book of Acts, you get, a, you get the impression that Paul comes to faith and is like immediately it's go time. He says in Galatians, it was like 13 years that he spent alone in the wilderness. It's so crazy. We're like, can we please just do this? The gestation period, if you will, for the people of God is long. Okay? But here's what, we'll watch this play out. How, does, how well does Abraham do during his wait? Not so great, right? What's he gonna, what kind of games is he going to play Waiting for a baby. The whole Hagar thing, that was kind of a low point, I think. How many times is he just making these stupid decisions? David is going to do an unbelievably good job waiting for 15 years. And he doesn't, he doesn't know that it's 15 years. He doesn't know if it's one year or 15 or 45. He is faithful to wait. That's one of the things we're going to watch about his life, like the exceptional patience of David. During God's ordinary period of, hey, it's going to be a while. I made a promise to you. I'm going to keep it. Later. Oh, gosh. It's going to drive you mad. Kelly Sue. Okay, a couple things. One, well, also, as far as promises waiting, <coughs> promise to us, we're still waiting for him to return. So. <laughs> Amen. Anyway, but back to David. So, I just, I, I, I think, I agree to, I think, I suspect David knew he was being anointed as king because of. Peculiar that it's not made more explicit about David's kingship. Right. And so I, I don't know that it's a slam dunk that David knows exactly what's going on. Yeah. Okay. And so and you you might be you you could be right. I do think that Samuel is going to be telling him more than is necessarily revealed. That any one of these narratives, they're, they're always going to telescope the information. We're not getting a verbatim transcript of all that happens. So I do think that there's more going on. And we see there's never. I don't. I'm not aware. Maybe we'll see it, and I've forgotten it. But I don't think there's a time where David's going to be told this later. But he has. Throughout this period, he's going to be aware that he's that the kingdom is his, 
but he's waiting patiently for it. But maybe there's more. We'll see as we go through. Maybe I'll be eating, eating those words as we go. Okay, Catherine. I just get this feeling about David that he spent so much time alone with God. Oh, for sure. Out there, I mean, out with the sheep. Yeah. And I mean, year after year, under the, you know, all by himself, and and then and he did kill those beasts, and um, he just I, that was so much preparation to me. Just the word trust. Like I think he had trust in God more than that's right and that's i think is one of the things that that the lord sees in david that he's pointing samuel to is that david has an enormous amount of faith in the lord right and so when he kills lions and bears he's like well i'll kill lions and we'll see this he's like i can kill goliath i've killed lions let's dance right right and because he's he's walked with him and he lives with him and david's david's one of his when we asked why is he a man after god's own heart i think it is chiefly that he he trusts him he believes in him and he's willing to do great things. He's got issues. We're going to see them. David's going to screw up a whole bunch of stuff, but he sees them. Okay, again, when you're reading narrative, we're looking for tags. We're looking for meanings because the narrator is not going to tell us what things mean. He's just going to tell us what happened, and he leaves it up to us to figure out the meaning. These do not have, there's not morals to the story in narrative that are made explicit. He's like, watch it happen. And so if we will read attentively and notice what's going on, then something, then, then the meaning can come forward. And so what he says is from that day on, verse 13, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. That's worth underlining. That's a big deal. Yeah, Bob? In the ESV, it says it rushed upon him. And if you go back to chapter 10, Samuel prophesies that when he's anointing Saul, I mean, Samuel is anointing Saul. He actually has the spirit rush upon him, and he prophesies with the other prophets. So he was given that same opportunity. Yes. David capitalized it with obedience to the long term. Excellent. And so what we're meant to see here is we're doing a, this is going to be a great big for chapters and chapters and chapters. We're watching a comparison and a contrast with Saul. Saul had been, had been given the spirit, but the spirit was taken away. And now the spirit is going to be given to David. And he's not going to be taken away. It's why David has, a, there's a psalm, you might know the, the lyrics of it, or about psalms, whatever, psalm song, where he says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Do you recognize that line? Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and renew your steadfast. Okay, that's David saying, don't do to me what you did to Saul. I watched my predecessor. I watched what happened there. Don't do that to me. And now let me just tell you this. Sometimes when we sing that song, I'm like, oh, I love that song. However, don't understand the poor theology that you might think of. Because the Spirit was given to you in Christ in a different way than the Spirit was given to Saul and to David. He will never take his Spirit from you. If you are in Christ, we are in a position of security that is different from what these guys had. These guys lived pre-New Covenant. They lived before the giving of the Spirit. It was a special, unique, unusual thing. It mattered. It was amazing. But it's not what we're experiencing now. And so if you read that, I forget what psalm number it is. If anybody remembers it, shout it out. 51, take not the Holy Spirit from me. Okay, he's not gonna. Okay, we're living in a different time. We're under a different, different mid. The Spirit has been given out to those, poured out to him. He's never gonna lose it. But for David, it was a real option. For Saul, it wasn't only a real option, but it had happened. And so we're watching this. You're watching for the contrast. Saul was given the Spirit, it was taken away. Then David is given the Spirit. And then there's another contrast. Watch for it. Here's the contrast here. Verse 14, now, the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, right? That's what we're talking about. And a, quote, evil spirit from Saul tormented him. 
So let's pause there for a second. What on earth do you make of the Lord sending an evil spirit to Saul? What do you think is going on there, you guys? The Lord gave Saul an evil spirit. Anybody have a problem with that? I think that's strange. Anybody think anybody on team weird for that? Okay. So a couple things. A couple things to know. Hebrew is very rich in verbs. It's very poor in nouns, which mean that nouns have broad lexical range. Okay? So when you see a noun in Hebrew, there's like one word means like 20 different things. Okay? And the word here, evil, let me show you how this word is translated in lots of places. That word shows up over 300 times in the Old Testament. Here it is in Genesis 31. I have the power to harm you. Same word. But last night, the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Same word. Genesis 37. Now let us kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal. That word translated as evil, harm, bad, ferocious. Genesis 41. After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly. I've never seen such ugly cows. The lean, ugly cows ate up all the ones. That looks just as ugly as before. Same word. So it's ugly, it's ferocious, it's bad, it's harm. Genesis 44. Do not let me see the misery. Same word. That would come upon my father. Exodus 33. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to warn, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. Okay? So if you begin to get a sense of the word, no doubt it's unpleasant, right? Ferocious, misery, ugly, all these things. But it doesn't mean, it doesn't have to mean, and I don't believe in this instance that it does mean morally depraved. Right? The word evil comes to us with a sense of, doesn't evil associate with sin in your life? Right, The word doesn't need to mean that. And I, I do not believe that God would send sinful spirits to Saul. But I do think that he is not just here, but in other places in life. Is he willing to bring pain into people's lives? Yes. He is. But it doesn't, he, we, we don't charge him with sin. This is not a sinful thing. It is miserable and Saul is going to suffer. And he does that all the time. Okay. Suzanne? Uh, is it possible that it's miserable? I mean, he's, he's had the Holy Spirit taken, and he has this spirit from God that's ferocious, say, instead of evil. Yeah. That it's like all the time rubbing against the sinful nature that he has given it to. Absolutely. Absolutely, because Saul brings all the evil to the party that we need, right? It's not like we're, we don't need to add a cup of sin into, this, into the life of Saul, right? It's our, the rebellion is already there, but God is going to bring misery into it. Yeah, bro? Uh, is it possible that instead of him sending the evil spirit, he's just used to the Holy Spirit being in him, and he's deprived of it now? And by comparison, that's a great question. Like, uh, he's missing Yes, okay, that's a great question. So if he's used to the Holy Spirit living in him and the Spirit has been removed, is it, could it be that the contrast here is just that it's just miserable? I think there's something to this that he is lacking and he will be lacking for, again, for the next 15 years, he is living outside of the blessing that he once enjoyed and it's gone. But he's living outside of that in a state of sin. And we've noticed, have you noticed that sin and suffering just kind of go hand in hand? Your sin causes you to suffer and your suffering causes you to sin. Have you noticed this phenomenon? It's my badness breaks me and my brokenness makes me bad. So these things are they're playing out. And for, for Saul, I think what God, well, why, why would God do this? Why would God bring this spirit into his life to 
exemplify his misery, his sadness, his rebellion, his pain. Why would why do you think that is part of God's purposes here? But to teach him a lesson. Teach him a lesson. Maybe to make it more clear to the people of Israel over time that Saul is not God's chosen leader. Yes, to make it people, make it more clear to the people of God. This is all these things are true. Does God ever bring pain so that He can bring healing? Can you think of other instances where He does that? Yeah. Lily. Jesus. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> also, Psalm one nineteen and faith. I know, Lord, that Your rules are righteous and faithful that You afflicted me. And then also it says, I, um, "It is good that I was afflicted, for then I kept Your commands." But. I mean, it's, it's, all, it's everywhere, right? It's just constantly, all the time. And in this particular instance, what's going to be interesting, maybe you know if you know the next verse, God is going to put Saul in a place of sadness and misery, of ferocity, all these different things. Is God also going to provide a healer to Saul? And it's David. It's our guy, right? So what you've got to see is that Saul is not, we're not just comparing and contrasting here, their lives. One had the spirit, one has lost the spirit. But Saul is going to become the foil for the grandeur of David, right? What's about to happen is that Saul in his misery and his sorrow and his, and his lowliness is gonna have someone who steps into his life and brings him peace. Watch it, watch it play out. Here it goes. Verse 23, whenever the spirit from God came upon Saul, this is this misery-inducing spirit, came from God to Saul, David would take his harp and play and then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. God is doing something here. We are, as he's replacing Saul, you have this sense it's very different from the way John the Baptist is going to use the phrase. But one of these men is going to become lesser, and the other is going to become greater. And Saul, in his misery and in his sorrow and his, his grief, he's going to be comforted by David over and over and over. And despite the fact that David is endlessly good to him, Saul is going to have only increasing animosity back to him. We're just watching the narrative pattern. That God brings one who is a rescuer, who brings comfort, who brings solace. But even in the midst of that solace, there's, it only increases the rebellion. I wonder if God might be teaching something about what it's like to be the God of this group of people. Is it not true that he brings comfort into our lives, he rescues us in our, in our sin and suffering, and then we rebel from him more. There's a pattern we're watching to see. John? Um, one of the things, this spirit is causing more than grief. Uh, going over to chapter 18, uh, uh, verse 10, it's, it mentions, now it can't, uh, this is for, for, further on after uh, the lie. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved and he raved, say it again, John, he raved what? Raved in the midst of the house. So Saul, Saul was more than unhappy. Saul was, this was. He's going insane. Yeah. He's going to, yeah, we're going to watch Saul. He's going to basically lose his mind as he becomes more and more unhinged and more and more committed to these things that God is denying him. The, the separation from reality is just only going to grow. No, no, no doubt. Okay, Kelly? This is going back a little bit in the conversation from earlier. Sure. Um, another contrast between David and Saul, and also your question about God permits suffering. One of the reasons he permits suffering is to show us that we 
all true. Okay, it's going to be hard for you to repeat that. I'm going to persuade you off camera to get up here with a microphone with me because it's just too hard to, it's too hard to recap all that you're, all, there's so, but next week we're going to talk about this because I would wish you were up here on a microphone. It'd be so helpful. Elijah. Uh, did you notice that it's music that helps Saul? Yeah. Yeah, that's the specific thing is that David plays music for him and that has this calming effect. Does that strike you in any particular way? Yes, I think it's saying that music is one of God's tools or um, something like that, maybe. Yeah. The Bible often mentions music uh, like that. Julie, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah! <laughs> Music is magic. It just is, right? It has some some power to speak into different parts of our lives, and it's, it shouldn't surprise us that God has used it. It seemed like it was part of His plan when He when He invented music, that it would be a gift to us. Okay, the clock is already ticking, as as is the usual. But here, let me let me read you this. This is from a, one of my, the best number one commentary on First uh, Samuel is the New American Commentary. And if you wonder how I say that, um, there's a great website. It's called uh, Best Commentaries Plural. Dot com. They rank every commentary ever made. And you can go through and be like, on this book, who's got the greatest insights? Who's done the greatest work? And then you can go buy it, right? So you're not just reading your Bible, but you're, if you've got some commentary next to you and you're able to learn an insight, it's going to help that self-feeding. So here's New American Commentary on this section. Listen to this. It says, the three concluding verses of chapter 16 depict David's first encounter with the one who would soon devote his life to trying to kill him. The verses play an important role in the larger scheme of First and Second Samuel, for they serve as the first evidence, here it is, that David was a loyal, trustworthy servant of Saul who used his abilities to benefit the king. In spite of Saul's repeated efforts to kill David, Israel's next king made absolutely no efforts to bring down Saul's dynasty. In fact, David performed feats in Saul's behalf that no one else could. And the king initially appreciated David's efforts, right? But the relationship deteriorates. We're going to watch that. And as it deteriorates, it will never be David's fault that the relationship fails. Okay? So if you're doing this, if you're going to read chapter 16 and 17 and 18, 19, 20, 21, if you're going to walk through, I want you to watch this dynamic. The author here, as he introduces David, he's creating this template for us. Watch this. What you're going to find over and over and over and over and over again, Saul is treacherous toward David. And David, with great extremity, has the opportunity to do him good or to do him harm every single time without fail. He will always do him good. Okay, We're watching that pattern develop. That means something. We'll see more of what it means as the story goes on. But as you read through, just watch for that. Notice the comparison, the contrast. One man has lost the spirit of God. And is going to lose his mind. His world becomes inner and inner and inner. He spins into madness. You're going to watch him make some really, really foolish decisions as his sin and rebellion just decays. One man has perceived the Spirit of God, which gives him the power and the ability under extreme duress to unfailingly do the right thing until he doesn't. Okay? Samuel is going to be, the narrative, Samuel is going to give us hope and hope and hope and hope and hope. Because we're looking for the Messiah. We're looking for the one who has come. The king. The king for whom we long. Is this him? Is he the guy? And we're going to be, we're going to grow. We're going to think it's him. I think it's him. Are you seeing how well this is going? I think it's him. It's going to break. Because the point is that it's not, he is not the Messiah. 
he is not the king, but he points to the one who is. David's going to break your heart, right? But before he breaks your heart, watch his goodness, watch his beauty, watch his faithful suffering, and let's see what that, where, that, where the narrator is trying to take us. Okay? You want to read it? First Samuel, start at chapter 16, slam away at it, and we'll, we'll pick it up in chapter 17 next week. Okay? All right. 